Hello and welcome to Top Class, the OECD's education podcast. My name is Henry and I work in the OECD's Directorate for Education and Skills. We are living in the midst of an unprecedented crisis which has affected basically every aspect of life. COVID-19 has caused disruptions across the globe, in many places putting a halt to the normal running of life and the economy as we know it. Uh, one clear victim has been schools, with school closures affecting countries worldwide. Uh, so today, we're going to talk about how countries have responded to the school closures and what that means for education going forward. So I'm very pleased to be joined by three special guests to discuss COVID-19 in education. We have Professor Fernando Ramos, Professor of the Practice in International Education at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Hello, Fernando. Can you hear us? I can hear you very well, Henri. I'm delighted to be here with you and Stefania and Andreas. Yeah, indeed. Also joining us is Stefania Giannini, Assistant Director General for Education at UNESCO. Hello, Stefania. Hello. Hello, everybody. It's a great pleasure to be with you and Fernando and Andreas today. Thank you for the invitation. And finally, we have Andreas Schleicher, Director of the OECD Directorate for Education and Skills. Andreas. Hello, everybody, um, and thanks for hosting, Henry. So we'll start with the immediate problems of COVID and education. Obviously, school closures are a hard-hitting reality in individual countries and basically across the world. But Fernando, together with OECD, you've recently conducted a survey to look at this on a global scale. Uh, what are the most common measures you've seen being implemented across countries to continue uh, learning without actually having to go to school? Uh, and how have they differed between the countries you looked at? Indeed, uh, uh, with, uh, with Andreas and the OEC and the directorate that he, that he leads, we're collaborating, actually developing a range of uh, decision support tools to assist governments and others in taking appropriate measures to ensure educational continuity during this pandemic which we expect is going to be long. When we conducted the first rapid assessment uh, three weeks ago now, uh, the most common measure in most of the countries was they had basically banned attendance to school, uh, but really left many schools to devise their own strategies for continuity. And what we observed was a very big divide uh, between the governments in the most uh, resource countries and the, the higher per capita income countries and the countries with greater capacity and those that had least capacity in terms of having any kind of plan, any kind of strategy for educational continuity. So I, I think that uh, the situation at that time was quite precarious because it announced that many students were going to be losing the opportunity to learn during this pandemic. And what was the major priority for, for countries? What did they say was most critical to respond to first? ensure the continuity for academic learning. Everybody seemed to recognize that that was the greatest need, the major priority, and the area where they were anticipating the greatest implementation challenges. And I think that uh, even now, it is what many countries are grappling with. As it becomes clear that this pandemic is gonna last a while, uh, the governor of Massachusetts just announced yesterday that uh, schools are not reopening for the rest of the entire academic year. So imagine this is more than four months of, uh, of learning time loss for our students. And in the absence of a real sound strategy that ensures academic learning and that ensures equal opportunity for kids, uh, this could represent the major disruption in, in educational opportunity uh, 
in, in a whole generation. And so, so I, 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 ensuring the continuity of academic learning, I would say, was recognized as the top priority. And the next one was providing effective support to parents or guardians so they could assist their kids in learning at home. Obviously, the whole situation, in some ways, at least for schools, kind of came out of the blue. Uh, but Andreas, how well would you say that schools and teachers and, and even students were prepared for this? really depends, you know, where you have school systems with a lot of frontline capacity, where teachers are creative designers of innovative learning environments, and where students have the motivation and the capacity to manage their own learning, things are going well. And I want to say that there are countless teachers in many countries at this moment who are growing beyond themselves in these difficult times, you know. Teachers who are not just instructing students remotely, but who are, who are becoming their coaches, their mentors, facilitators, evaluators, social workers, amazing people, you know, basically appearing now uh, who are liberated, you know, from the kind of very heavy bureaucratic structures. But uh, to speak, you know, these are more the exceptions than the rule. Most systems were designed for a very different world. And this crisis is, as Fernando just explained, exposing and amplifying the many problems and inequalities that are inherent in our systems. Now, from the broadband and computers that you need for online learning, through the supportive ecosystems that you need to build around, you know, schools, up to our consistent failure to align resources with needs. This is something that this crisis, you know, just amplifies. Um, and starting with the very basics, you know, on average across OECD countries, 9% of 15-year-olds do not even have a quiet place to study at home. And you go to countries like Indonesia or the Philippines, is about one-third. And then think of technology. Virtually every 15-year-old in socially, economically advantaged areas in a country like the United States you know, has a computer to work at home. But you look in the very same country, only three out of four students from disadvantaged home have a computer. And in Peru, you know, 88% of students from privileged backgrounds, you know, can work with a digital device, but only 17% in disadvantaged areas. These are huge inequalities within country. And then, you know, technology is only as good as it's actually used. You know, when you ask school principals, on average, at best, two-thirds of principals consider their teachers well or reasonably well prepared to integrate technology into instructional kind of uh, practices, and that is before the crisis. Now, I said, you know, a lot of things are happening at this moment, but our systems were designed for a different world where, you know, you could have very heavy bureaucratic structure. What you need now is resilience, agility at the front line, uh, uh, huge, huge kind of challenges. And in a way, at this moment, even the best minister of education cannot address the needs of millions of students and hundreds of thousands of teachers. This is not the moment where you push new ideas in the classroom. It's the moment where you need to try to find the good ideas in classrooms and support them and scale them and spread them. Now, in this moment of crisis, don't ask yourself how many teachers follow your directions. Now, ask yourself, how good are my teachers to collaborate among themselves? Now, and this requires a high degree of professional autonomy and still a collaborative culture. Again, this frontline capacity is so absolutely key. And again, when you look at pre-crisis data, you can see that in the OECD area, we have just one in 10 teachers who routinely observe somebody else's classrooms and give feedback. Now, even if the class was just 
you know, next step. Now in this crisis, this is so much more challenging, but we do not have the social fabric of education systems to, you know, become resilient as a system, despite the many good examples. Obviously, uh, students and classes have lost a lot of time. They, they haven't been in class and they've had to take on these new ways of learning. Uh, and the constrained environment will, will obviously have a marked impact on what students can actually learn. Uh, so I wanted to ask Stefania, in, in your opinion, do you think countries should reprioritize what is being learned in a curriculum over the next few months, given the reduced capacity? Should it be a, either a kind of truncated curriculum or new or different skills are brought to the top of the priority list? What do you think? Well, let me say, first of all, that uh, as uh, both uh, Andreas and Fernando uh, underlined, uh, despite the best intentions, the force that you already observed uh, from governments, teachers, uh, and all the education community, uh, I, I think that uh, we sh should be anticipated that learning gaps will increase during school closures. And that they will increase mostly and especially for children uh, from uh, the most uh, vulnerable and disadvantaged backgrounds. So clearly, clearly it's necessary to set the minimum and realistic learning targets during the crisis and also, you know, start immediately to, to look uh, what uh, will be the contest after the crisis, how we can capitalize, how we can uh, learn some lessons. Now something is already very clear, I think, uh, in the, also in the, in the observatory we have uh, at UNESCO uh, globally. And, uh, and it's quite clear that we have to ensure that all students have access to learning in one way or another. So, to mention concretely uh, what, uh, what uh, can be done and, uh, and what kind of measures uh, in terms of curriculum and beyond curriculum, let me say that, first of all, we see that many governments are already planning for remedial learning support, including uh, um, some uh, during vacation periods, uh, special measures when school uh, reopen. Some countries have already decided to do like this. Now we see here in France, for instance, that there will be a progressive uh, uh, reopening uh, process. And some other countries decided definitely, like Italy, just to, to stay in Europe, uh, that schools reopen after summer. So to fill the gap, it's absolutely necessary to have uh, uh, a very well uh, mix of, of different solutions, no? not simply e-learning, but uh, you know, an, an integrated approach no? where you can put together uh, TV, radio channels, uh, and all the, the tools that can support uh, this uh, minimum uh, and, uh, and necessary content and uh, quality education. Then there are specific cases, if I may, that uh, I want to briefly, uh, to briefly recall. For instance, the case of vocational educational training, which poses a specific set of, of, of special challenges uh, with the risk that these school closures uh, can really increase mostly inequalities and drop out rates. We know very well that uh, all over the world, I think in Tibet, so-called in vocational educational training, the share of low-income students uh, is, uh, is, uh, is much higher. So the risk of, uh, of uh, uh, leaving behind the students is it's higher as well. 
And then additional support, personalized monitoring for these students will be crucial. Uh, and uh, another dimension is uh, the value and the importance of the humanities that we can you know, discover uh, in the way and in the sense that uh, uh, the study in the humanities is largely text and, uh, and image-based you know, and tends to work uh, very well at distance. Uh, so, I mean, it's a good opportunity also to see you know, how this uh, complex situation must really very much approach with uh, an integrated system of tools, uh, putting uh, the quality dimension at the very, very, on top of everything and every kind of measures the governments are, are uh, putting in practice. And for us as international organization, uh, it's, it's really very much uh, important to, to support the, the education community in a top-down and a bottom-up process as well. And with that support as well, there's, it's not just about learning um, and teaching and learning and, and classroom achievement, that there's also the, the social and emotional aspect, which without the presence of teachers and schools must be lacking hugely right now. Uh, Andreas, do you think countries are doing enough to, to combat that? Well, you know, more generally, learning is not a transactional experience. It's always a relational experience. You know, the, the, the subjects where you studied most when you were in primary school were probably the ones where, you know, your teacher understood you best and supported you best. So I think we need to keep that in mind. But in a moment of crisis where uh, students and teachers are physically apart, they need to work even harder to be socially close. And that means, you know, engaging in the social emotional development of children. In uh, f uh, the survey, Fernando raised the importance of, you know, continued academic learning, but student well-being, teacher well-being also ranked very, very high. I think this crisis brings to the forefront that uh, we need a much more holistic approach to education, certainly in this crisis, but, but also beyond. You know, students are living through a very difficult times personally and uh, in the environment. And uh, I think this is a test for the education systems. Are we preparing young people for a more complex, volatile world? So yes, I think the, the social and emotional uh, skills will clearly rise in importance. And again, I think, you know, many teachers are going out of the way to do this now. In a way, this is the moment for teachers to, to live their, you know, aspirations. When we survey a teacher, nine out of 10 teachers say, I became a teacher in order to make a difference to the lives of young people, not to teach mathematics or history. Um, I want to make a contribution to society. So I think actually teachers have that aspiration. And I think what they need now is the the resources and the tools to do this. It may mean also reprioritizing the way in which teachers spend their time to give teachers enough time to follow up with parents, to follow up with, uh, with individual students. You know, just giving a student a phone call and uh, showing that you as a teacher are interested in their learning can make more of a difference than you know, adding hours of instruction time. Just to circle back to the individual country responses that uh, OECD and, and Fernando was looking at. Fernando, I wanted to ask, were there any countries that for you stood out uh, in terms of their response to the school closures and, and COVID-19 in education? Yeah, uh, many in different ways. One of the countries that I think did a phenomenal job organizing 
a web portal with online resources. One of the next products we're going to release very soon with the OECD is an annotated curation of online resources. And uh, what we did was to capture in that survey what was being used in every country. And we have spent the last two weeks with a team of 20 uh, colleagues looking very carefully at what they were. And Colombia is phenomenal. I mean, absolutely a best practice. Um, I, I also think uh, France had a very interesting strategy of educational continuity. Um, Singapore uh, certainly uh, did um, put in place measures of social isolation earlier than other places. So you do see among countries bright spots, and you see within countries uh, bright spots of networks of schools, not just of teachers, as Andreas was describing, but networks of schools, particular uh, districts and so on. Uh, for example, one of the things we're doing with the uh, OECD is highlighting some of these responses. And, and I think one of the first ones that is going to be published is the response of a network of um, schools that serve very poor children in America, mostly African-American and Hispanic children, 10,000 of them. And it's remarkable how that school with very limited resources because of good leadership uh, actually was able to ensure not only the continuity of learning, the emotional support, the food for the kids. Uh, it makes you wonder why isn't everybody doing this? And I think this highlights what I think are going to be some of the legacies of this pandemic. In many ways, this pandemic is going to leave some very serious challenges for education leaders uh, to deal with. And I think there are three. One is the obvious learning loss that some kids would have experienced and the effects that for some of them would simply derail them from their academic trajectory. But the second one, very important, is I think the trust in particular systems and, and leaders is going to be very much undermined. I, I do think that as we speak, there is real variability in how around the world and within systems, there are some leaders who are leading, are leading in a way that promotes collaboration, are leading in a way that essentially helps people get out of their silos and solve a problem. And there are others who, who are not, and, um, and the people see that. And we forget that the construction of the idea of the public school, the trust in that institution, is a process that took centuries, centuries to take place. But um, I, I, I predict that in those systems where it's evident to people that their leaders uh, were not there for them when they needed them, this trust is very much going to suffer. You know, it's a syndrome of failed states. Um, educational institutions are so key to the belief that people have, for example, in democracy, in a state, to the confidence they have. And that confidence, as we know, has been suffering in many places around the world because the large public wonders if their institutions are really delivering for the majority of the people. So I think that's going to be the second uh, legacy, uh, which is a reason why it's so important to, to address to the educational consequence of this pandemic. And the third consequence is going to be tremendous fiscal austerity. I mean, think about regions around the world that are already on the brink of a debt crisis because they have been financing their development, borrowing in international capital markets, China largely. And those countries are already spending a disproportionate share of their budgets servicing that debt. Now, we have a historical memory of where that leads. It was called the debt crisis and the, and the last decade of the 1980s, when the developing world had borrowed excessively. And then in order to adjust economically, they had to constrain social expenditure for an entire decade. 
And, uh, and that's what led to Jean Tien, because the international community realized that we had lost in a decade the gains made in educational access and opportunity in the previous three decades. I suspect that for many nations around the world, uh, we're going to be dealing with, with similar problems, which I think is the reason why people so different as Pope Francis on the one hand and John Soros on the other have begun to talk about debt renegotiation, debt forgiveness, and begin to anticipate uh, these, these matters. So uh, to sum up, in response to your question, I think the big differences that we see are a function of leadership at all levels. And there is a crisis like this makes evidence the, the difference that good leadership makes and the harm that bad leadership can make. You touched on some of the, the longer term consequences there of this crisis on education and on the economy in general. So to finish off, I, I wanted to kind of give an open question to the group and I'll start with Stefania, but the question is, do you think the COVID-19 crisis will fundamentally change the way education is, is run across the world? Stefania, what do you think? I think that we have a great potential for change and for transformation. All the topics that we touch also today in this conversation with, uh, with my friends and colleagues, uh, Fernando and, uh, and uh, Andreas, uh, are very much about a key word which can summarize not all the efforts we are doing. Uh, either we, we look at governments uh, which have, have you know, direct responsibility of their own uh, education community or uh, international organization, uh, university, central research, as uh, Fernando, uh, you know, team uh, working on, on solutions. But for all of us, the, the key word is equity. We discovered in this crisis that, you know, uh, the, the real uh, red line uh, uh, must be keep uh, continuity of learning for all students. And that means touching all the dimensions that we discussed today from uh, the blended uh, and integrated approach, putting in practice all the tools we have and not only e-learning solution, as we know that uh, from numbers we released uh, as UNESCO yesterday, uh, half than uh, the world students population, which is out of school because of the crisis, uh, the coronavirus crisis now, uh, don't have access to, to e-learning. And uh, more than, uh, than half, uh, 63%, don't have uh, two devices to work on that. So, I mean, there are these solutions, but it's the well-being um, and the health, emotional uh, dimension that uh, Andreas uh, developed before. So it's a, it's a very unique uh, laboratory to where I see a great potential for transformation. But of course, uh, the answer to this, uh, to your question is not predetermined. I, I mean, it's in the hands of teachers, it's in the hands of school leaders, uh, parents and students as well. So it's a question of leadership and, uh, and keeping trust back as Fernando mentioned before. Let me simply uh, focus on some specific issue. First, the crisis is highlighting our reliance on technology. Everything we are doing is because, <laughs> as our conversation today, we can be connected and uh, virtually meet. And uh, we also, we, we, we can achieve some realistic balance in the future between uh, these uh, digital dimension, these digital distance strategies and the real classroom, the school-based teaching 
learning in terms of what is really effective, for whom, where, and when. And uh, this, uh, this is something which brings me to the other point that in my view is quite critical uh, to, to give an answer to your question. There will need to be a clear recommitment to public education and to the right to education. We, we put the private sector around the table when the UNESCO called all our partners, including OECD and Tax for Join Us, a global coalition, a temporary a force to coordinate better. And private sector is part of that. But one thing that we are seeing clearly, thanks to this crisis, is how important education is as a public good. And then the last point, uh, is uh, what uh, Fernando mentioned as the physical, the, the financial, sorry, austerity, uh, which we already see clearly, uh, and uh, will touch education, of course, as a domain. And uh, to do that, uh, to to you know, to 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 assure that education uh, will not left behind, we have really to to raise up. Uh, a great awareness of the importance of the sector and to to leverage political will and uh, political commitment once again. And uh, this is another opportunity I see in this crisis as well. I'm going to throw the question over quickly to Andreas and then and then Fernando. Yeah, no, I would uh, fully subscribe to what uh, Stefania just outlined. Uh, but I think there are many steps on this way that we need to take. I mean, hopefully, we will not come out after this crisis in the same way we went into this crisis. Hopefully, the lessons that are being learned in terms of new learning environments, I hope that, you know, remote learning, distance learning, digital technology will remain with us in, in that future. But I, I think also that we think uh, much more carefully about uh, what young people need to learn. Uh, we talk a lot about the how, the methodology, but uh, our education systems have become very good to educate second-class robots, you know, people who are very good to, you know, repeat what we tell them. I think in this time, we need to think much, uh, much harder about what makes people human. What are the cognitive, social, emotional resources that actually help people to succeed in tomorrow's world, the capacity to imagine, to create something of intrinsic positive worth, the capacity of people to navigate ambiguity, to manage complexity, the kind of situations that we find ourselves today in will perhaps one day become the new normal, uh, the capacity to take action, to take responsibility, to position yourself every day in a new place in this world. I do think, uh, after this crisis, we will need to think much harder about those kinds of questions. Fernando, what do you think to finish? Of course, this is going to change us fun fundamentally. Uh, today, on April 22nd, 2.5 million people have been infected. 180,000 people have died. That is a huge number. That number is almost half the number of Americans who died in World War II, which is the largest number of people we have lost uh, in any battle in, in recent memory. And uh, to go back to World War II, in 1942, Winston Churchill said, now this is not the end. It is not even the beginning of the end, but it is perhaps the end of the beginning. Well, unfortunately, this is not even the end of the beginning of the first phase. We are in many places in the middle of the beginning. 
in some countries we're not even at the beginning of the beginning. And we know there will be a second wave. The Director General of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention this morning um, was, was, gave a speech in which he said, the second wave is gonna be a lot harder in our systems than the first wave. And so how this is going to change all of us. It's gonna change all of us because we're gonna be mourning those dead for a long time. But also everyone who survives is going to be asking everyone else, you were in the middle of this tragedy and you saw how it was ravaging people, how it was robbing educational opportunity. What did you do about it? And I think to the extent that we can give answers, honest answers that demonstrate that we were not indifferent, maybe we will be able to come out of this and, and have some trust in each other. And so I think this is gonna change how we think about life, how we think about education, how we think about leadership, how we think about management and how we think about each other. I hope that um, because surviving this pandemic is going to require that we practice a lot of adaptive habits, a lot of habits that are about collaboration, communication, promotion of creativity, we will become a little bit less patient when this is over with styles of management and governance that are inherited from the 18th century and that impede the very things we need to solve the problems of the 21st century, that impede those three C's of communication, collaboration, and creativity. And so maybe uh, if, if we all practice those habits and we become less patient with the structures of the past, we would have made the transition to a world that actually would give us the institutions that we need. Uh, to build a better future in a world that is going to be volatile and uncertain for the foreseeable future. Okay, I think that's pretty much all we have time for, but thank you to everybody for, for joining me. And thank you to everyone for listening. If you'd like to find out more about COVID-19's impact on education, you can get updates from the Education Directorate on our Twitter page, at OECD EduSkills. And if you'd like to know more about OECD's work on COVID-19 in general, you can visit the OECD's dedicated webpage, which is oecd.org forward slash coronavirus. Thanks again, everybody. And until next time.